Thank you, Ken and Barbara, for our music tonight. Welcome to those of you joining us for our evening service on live stream. Tonight we are back in the book of Genesis in chapter 2. And I am doing a second of three messages, though they've been separated uh, by a number of weeks in between, but three messages uh, on people, marriage, and family. And we're on the second of those, so we're going to talk about marriage tonight from God's point of view, Genesis chapter 2. And so if you are there, we, when we talked about people, we were in chapter 1, where God made us in his own image. He made uh, Adam and Eve, male and female, both in the image of God. And so it's in chapter 2 where we find this first uh, marriage that took place in Scripture. Let me read from verse 18, Genesis 2. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and the woman, and were not ashamed. Of course, here we see uh, the first divine institution that God made, and that is marriage, as uh, before there were any more people on the earth, uh, just a man and a woman, uh, God performed the first marriage. He made us male and female, we learned last time and in chapter 1, because he made us for marriage and he made us for family. He made us to be like that. Now, I'm going to, in tonight's message, also defend and praise singleness as a gift from God, if that's how God uh, gifts a certain person. But I'm talking about, of course, marriage uh, tonight mostly. And this is a needed me uh, message in the day in which we live, for our day. I, I don't think so much for, uh, you know, I'm preaching to the choir, I realize tonight here in, uh, in our church. Uh, but uh, in this world we live in, there's a denial uh, of the image of God in a person. That's pretty serious. And a denial even of the gender in which God put his image I think both of these, as I've said often, is a grievous sin before God uh, to say that God made such a mistake in us. Then to use the body in sex out of marriage, in sex with the same gender, or with sex with a creature, other creatures of God, all of those are grievous sins before Him. And not only that, but the destruction of marriage, the destruction of the family, and 
of course, the terrible thing of the destruction of life that is created by uh, a male and a female. All of those are grievous sins before God. I'm not going to make this message negative, but I'm saying this up front and I'm not saying anything new. You know these things. Uh, we happen to be in a month called Pride Month because they take pride in uh, all of these perversions of God, the LGBT and Q. It used to be called gay pride, but now they've expanded it uh, to that. Do you know that the last verse in Romans chapter 1, where God condemns all of these things as sins, he says God's judgment is on not only those who practice such things, but on those who approve those who practice these things. So we know that. We want to, as believers, uh, see what God says about marriage and what God would have uh, for us and his uh, people in this. Marriage as God has given it to us will bring happiness, fulfillment, contentment, blessing, and an avenue to serve God in this world. So marriage is a blessing uh, to the human race from God. So if you will, uh, look at your notes. I, I know I don't have a very complete outline there, but what I'm going to do is give you three words under each one. So if you're writing, you can fill these in, but you see them there on your screen or you, excuse, you have them in uh, your bulletin before you. Uh, I don't know if that's an interesting uh, three thoughts to you, but it is to me, pre-marriage, marriage, and post-marriage. Uh, it, it's not a, the usual outline of, of, about marriage, but, you know, even as I'm looking at our congregation sitting before me tonight, there's one of every one of those here before us, or a, a number of those. There are those who are not married yet, uh, choose not to be married, perhaps. There are those that are married and there are those who have been married or now are widowed or widower and so forth. And so we have all these stages of marriage, and I want to speak to these as the, uh, I think the Bible speaks to them. So first of all, in the pre-marriage thing, here are my three words. There's singleness, there's decision, and there's engagement. Singleness, decision, and engagement. Now, singleness means somebody's alone. Uh, the Bible will call this being a widow, and I'll come back to that word in a little bit, because the word widow itself simply means someone who's alone. So uh, a woman we usually refer to as a widow, a, a man as a widower, uh, so there's a category for that. But here I'm talking about that time before marriage, when a person is single and perhaps headed toward marriage. Uh, we need... <laughs> God's instruction on in our lives in these days in, in uh, which we live. Now, it's interesting in our text, verse 18, what did God say? It is not good that man should be alone. Well, there you go. Uh, he's going to make marriage. It's not the best thing to live alone. But there's an interesting statement in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul says it is good not to uh, be married or to uh, touch a woman, which I'll explain in a minute. So it's not good that man should be alone. Guess what? The first two people that lived alone on the world lived together. <laughs> and uh, uh, Adam looked at all of these creatures that he had named, and there was nothing in the image of God in those creatures. There's nothing that fit him, a, a helper comparable to him. So God makes the woman 
to join to the man, and he says, that is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So we read throughout the Old Testament, almost every person that we know uh, is a married person, man and woman. We get to uh, Mary and Joseph and the very parents, earthly parents, that is, of the Lord Jesus himself, married people. Even Peter, one of the disciples, was married. We know of his wife and his, his mother-in-law. But it's interesting in, in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says it's not good, uh, or it's good, he says, excuse me, for a man not to touch a woman. And that idea of touch is a euphemism for not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's good if you don't uh, live like that uh, on this earth. It's a good thing. And you know why? Because he did. And Jesus did. And uh, some of the disciples did. And so if you can live that way, it's good. As a matter of fact, in verse 7, he says, I wish all men were as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that manner. And so Paul here even calls singleness a gift. And the fact is that uh, uh, he says it's good. He also says in verse 2 of that chapter, it's hard. It's hard because you're still a human being. You still have uh, all of the nature that everyone else has. And so you, there are challenges to being single. But then he says in verse 7, it's also a gift if God gives it to you. Here's how the Lord worded that in Matthew uh, 19 and verse 12. He, he used the word eunuch, which is the old biblical word. He says there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God and heaven's sake. And he was able to accept it, let him accept it. There are those who live single for the kingdom of God's sake, the Lord himself said. I liked what Merle Unger said about this. He said the term uh, is employed figuratively by our Lord in Matthew 19 with the reference to the power, whether possessed by a natural disposition or acquired as a property of grace, that is a gift from God, of maintaining an attitude of indifference by the solicitations of the fleshly desires. And so I'm pointing out that Paul said it, and so did the Lord, that there is a gift of God's grace to certain people to live alone and to live as single. That's great. And if God has, has gifted somebody with that, uh, it's a good thing. So there's that singleness time. And we all were that way at one time, right? I mean, we grew up uh, single, and uh, we come to that marrying age, and then we decide whether uh, we should be one who gets married or one who stays single. But in either path that you take, you take it the way God wants you to take it in the parameters and in the laws and in the morality that God wants you to have. The second word is decision. So I see in verse 18, I will make him a helper comparable. I will make. So God says, uh, you need somebody, Adam, and I'm going to make her. Now, we come to a time in our lives where there's a junction. And we decide whether we should get married, and we decide whether that's the person <laughs> that we should marry. 
and there may be a number of junctions. There may be a number of such choices. Proverbs 18.22 says, He that finds a wife finds a good thing and finds favor with God. Uh, so it's a good thing to find a wife. And yet the Bible tells us what about finding a wife or a husband? That it should be a believer, right? As we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should marry another believer. So 1 Corinthians 7.39 in that marriage chapter of, of Corinthians, Paul says, If her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes. And then he adds, only in the Lord. We, we can't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, and the, the most severe way you could be yoked together with an unbeliever is uh, to marry an unbeliever. Now, it is true, and the reason we find the discussion about divorce and desertion and things like that in the New Testament is because, no doubt, as the gospel was being preached, uh, one person may hear the gospel and believe it, and the other person does not. And that, no doubt, was the case with Timothy's mother and grandmother, for example. Uh, his mother uh, was a believer, but his father was not. Why is that? Because when they heard the gospel, she believed it, he did not. They find themselves like that. And so Paul deals with those kind of marriages in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 7 also. So what are the priorities when you make that decision? What, is the, what are the priorities for a single person who comes to that time and says, I think I should get married. I think I want to get married. And uh, you start that process, I guess, of looking and thinking and dating perhaps and those kinds of things. Well, the Lord is a priority. Can you still make the Lord first in your life? Can you still live the way God wants you to live before him? Church is a priority. It's a priority for every believer. Can I marry this person and still keep my priority that God wants me to keep toward his church? Thirdly, a lifestyle. Can you marry this person and still live a Christian lifestyle the way God wants you to live? That has to be a yes. And what about doctrine? Uh, if you marry someone whose doctrine is so opposite of yours or so different, it may not be every absolute uh, point, you know, but so different from yours, can you live together and worship together? And what about purity? Uh, can you both commit yourself to purity together? Those kinds of are, are priorities uh, that must be kept. You remember that old saying about the, the boy uh, fell in love with a dimple and made the mistake of marrying the whole girl. You remember that? Uh, you know, so don't just uh, uh, make the mistake of that. L let me tell you something, that usually those who are dating and even those who are engaged haven't yet seen the real person. Because both of you are putting your best foot forward right now. And you are being so polite and so nice and so thoughtful. And you know what? You probably won't be like that all your life. And uh, when a little bit of time goes by, you go back to being who you really are. And so as much as you can, see how that, what that person really is like and not just putting on for you during this dating or engagement time. So there's a decision time in the pre-marriage stage. And then thirdly, there's the engagement time. Well, 
he makes a helper comparable to him. And, and, and Adam says now, later in the, verse 23, uh, you know, this, this is made for me. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I'll call her a woman because she's made out of the man. And so there's some things that are equal here and some things that are not equal. The things that are equal are they're both made in the image of God. We learned that back in chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, he created him, and then he says, uh, in the image of God created he them. Remember, we said there is a him and a them uh, in these passages. And so the woman is as much a child, of, I should say as a believer, is a child of God as much as the man. Uh, she's as much in the image of God as the man is. Every man, every woman on the face of this earth, now or ever has been, is in the image of God. And the Lord, remember, said, uh, don't you remember that in the beginning God made them male and female? And therefore, uh, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And so uh, he made everyone that way. Not only that, but in chapter 1, verse 28, they are both given dominion over the earth. And so in a very real way, the man and the woman share in this dominion mandate to take care of the earth. But since Adam was there first, and Adam was already doing it, already naming animals and already in the garden doing things, he needed a helper. He needed a partner. And God made the woman to help him in this dominion. So in verse 28 of chapter 1, he's saying to both of them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish and everything else. And so... Uh, Men and women are equal in those ways. The very being that we have, the very image of God, the very soul that we possess, whether male or female, those are made by God. But they're, they are unequal in some ways, too. They're unequal in the sense that man is made to be the head of the wife. I'll say more about that in a minute. But uh, we find in chapter 3, when, God, when they have sinned before God, and God is meeting out the punishment for their sin, that he's going to say to the woman, uh, your, your punishment is going to be in the bringing forth of children. And why is that? It's because the woman has the specific responsibility of reproducing, right? And uh, though the man and the woman have to work together in that, She's the one that has to labor and bring forth the child, and she will be the nurturer and the, the, the uh, wife and, and uh, mother and keeper of the home and so forth. That's the way God made her. And by the way, folks, that's how she's fulfilled. And she's not fulfilled as a woman without doing that much at least. Now, the man is cursed by the tilling of the ground. So you're the tiller of the ground, Adam, and uh, guess what? You're going to find thorns and thistles in the garden out there, and you're, and, uh, you're going to sweat in order to keep the ground the way it should. So he's the tiller and she's the filler, you might say. He tills the ground and she fills it. Now, that's the way God made the man and the woman. That's why he made marriage. That's why he made these two people to be like that, share in the dominion. But the dominion is to both of us take our place, and do our job. I always remember this illustration. I've probably given it to you before, but uh, old R.G. Lee, the, 
the preacher uh, in uh, Bellevue Baptist in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, had a sermon he preached called Christ Above All. And I used to have that sermon on a record, a long playing record, and I would listen to it and, and I made it a cassette tape when you could still put those in your car <laughs> and listen to them, you know. But anyway, he's, he was talking about when he married his wife in the, in the horse and buggy days. And uh, he was saying how that uh, uh, they were at this little country church. They got married in the church. They came out, got in the buggy to drive off. And uh, they went down the lane a little way and turned where no one could see them. And he said, I stopped the buggy. And I looked over at my new bride, and I said, Honey, before we go any farther, I want you to know one thing. And she said, Oh, what's that? He said, You are not first in my life. <laughs> and, and he said her face took on this shocked look, and he said, I want you to know that Jesus Christ is first in my life. And he said she answered him and said, Well, then I know you're going to be the husband that God wants you to be to me and the father God wants you to be to our children. When we take our place that God created us for, uh, that's the way life will turn out. So there's the pre-marriage stage. There's also then the marriage stage. Well, once the engagement takes place, and this is the one God made for you. And by the way, uh, I, I'm, I like our custom of choosing our own mate. You know, I don't know about you. There have been those, uh, there's been those cultures where mom and dad choose for you. And you know what? They, they say that the statistics of marriage are better in those societies than in ours. Uh, but knowing my mom and dad, I'm still glad uh, that I chose. And they, they love you, honey. <laughs> okay. So what about the marriage? Three words I have here. One is covenant. The other is complement, spelled with an E, complement, and the third is headship. So when that man and that woman get married, what is marriage? Marriage is a covenant. Now, historically, there have been a few different kinds of marriage. Let me give those to you. One kind of marriage is the sacrament, where it belongs to the church, and in marriage, you're submissive to the church. That's a sacrament. The second type of marriage is contract, and that's the civil marriage, which we all participate in as well, where you have a contract, so to speak, not only with the government, but with one another. And as someone said, the contract is submissive for a time because contracts can always be broken. If you don't like this, our government has a way for you to get out of it, contract for a time. And the third type of marriage is a covenant, and that is a sacred law where you are submissive to God and to one another for life. And the Bible presents marriage as a covenant, and it should be. Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, says to the woman, he, meaning your husband, is the covenant of your God. And in the book of Malachi, talking about the marriage that took place in those days, the prophet says to the man, she is your wife by covenant. And so covenant is the word that is used with God. We stand before the Lord and we take vows, not just before one another. We take vows before God and we give our vows to him and our promises to him that we will do these things and keep these things. We make a covenant with one another and a covenant with God. 
Now, by the way, there are other kinds too. There are things called common law marriages. I would call that atheistic. I mean, that's a common law marriages. There's no law that binds me. I do what I want to do. And then I guess you would include cohabitation, and that is what we see too much of today, just people living together. I call that animalistic. That's like a bunch of rabbits just uh, producing children at will and not taking care of them and not doing anything with them. But the three major kinds are uh, church, civil, and sacred. And you know what? All of those are important. I think the church has a rightful place in the marriage, but uh, you're, not, you're not responsible to this church for your marriage. You're responsible to God and the person you made covenant to. Civil responsibility, I think, is important. You know why? Because God made marriage for everyone, and not just Christians. Everyone should get married. There ought to be families. And basically, that will be by the government you live under as you uh, 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 do what is right legally before them. So that's important, too. Uh, but to us, marriage is that, is that covenant. Now, it implies a few things. Let me give you these. It implies permanence to have a covenant. Matthew 19, 6, so then they are no longer, this is Jesus speaking, no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, uh, let not man separate. Jesus himself, quoting Moses, says that. Secondly, there's a sacredness then to the to the marriage covenant, Genesis 2.22. The rib which the Lord God made, uh, had taken from man, he made into a woman, he brought her to the man. You see the references to God there. The Lord God did that, he made the woman, he brought her to the man, he officiated in the first marriage. So it's a sacred thing. Thirdly, of course, there is intimacy. So in verse 24 of Genesis 2, Therefore, a man shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall be one flesh. This intimacy that comes in marriage is designed by God, physically designed for us that way, and uh, in a sacred way designed for us. There's mutuality. Now, though we, we are made the same, we have different jobs. So Paul in Ephesians 5 says simply to the wife, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then he says to the husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I don't, I don't know that mutual submission is the right word for that, but it's mutual jobs. It's mutual responsibilities before God. And when we both do our responsibility, we have a great home. And then there's exclusiveness. So Proverbs 518 uh, the, the writer said, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Uh, she is your wife. He is your husband. And rejoice in that and not anything else. So number one, marriage is a covenant. Number two, it's a compliment. And I say spell it with an E because if compliment with an I just means I give you a compliment. But complement with an E means we complement one another. We fit together as one another. It's called complementarity by writers today because, it, it, because it's a big issue today. The opposite of, of complementarity is egalitarianism, where uh, our society is wanting to say the husband and wife are equal in every way, not only in the home, in the church, and in every other way, uh, equal, egalitarian. 
And that's a big uh, discussion today, even, by the way, uh, among churches. So why did God make us different in these ways? For happiness, folks. You're made a certain way. You're made to do a certain thing. And as long as you're doing that, you're happy. It doesn't mean a wife can never work. It doesn't mean a man can never wash the dishes, all right? Uh, the Lord knows we, you know that about it. It just means that this is the way you're wired, so be like that, basically. I like what Andreas Kostenberger, in one of his books, he put it this way, rather, the biblical model for marriage is that of loving complementarity, where the husband and wife are partners who value and respect each other, where the husband's loving leadership is met with the wife's intelligent response. Loving leadership, intelligent response, that makes a good marriage. And so this complementarianism. We make big mistakes in our society when we erase gender and we erase the jobs that gender puts upon us. Kevin DeYoung, in one of his books, gave a great illustration, I thought. He said, take two of America's favorite sports, basketball and football, American football, and uh, consider the two balls that each game plays with. In basketball, you have this round basketball. You have it so that you can dribble it, you can shoot it, it goes through a, a, a round hoop, and that's called basketball. Football, American football anyway, has this oblong ball, and it's made so you can throw it through the air, uh, you can put it under your arm, uh, you can do things like that, you can kick it. But he says, try to switch those balls and play the same game. Try to have an American football and play basketball with it. Try dribbling a, a football on the floor. Try even shooting it through that round hoop or play football with a basketball and try to make a long pass and try to put it under your arm and run. He said both balls are made for a specific purpose, and when they're used for that purpose, boy, it works great. But when you try to use it for another purpose, it just doesn't quite fit. And I think that's a great illustration of what the husband and wife are like and what they're made for in one another. The third word there is headship. And so in... Uh, uh, in Genesis, uh, we find here uh, at the last of these verses, in verse 23, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was made out of the man. The man is made first and then the woman. Therefore, the man shall leave father and mother, joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And so the man leaves the home and the man makes a home. He comes out from under the headship of his family, and he becomes the head of the next family. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, of course, we have a specific statement. Paul says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. I think it's not wrong to see that Paul use the Trinity itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as an example to us of headship. Is the God the Father more God than God the Son? No. Is God the Son more God, more deity than the Holy Spirit? No. They're all equal on that regard. But 
Does the Son do the Father's job? No, He doesn't. And does the Holy Spirit do the Son's job? No, He doesn't. And so in the Godhead, there is responsibility handed down according to the responsibilities that they've uh, taken upon each other. That's what husband and wife do, Paul is saying. And so though the man was created first, the woman was made from the man, uh, still they, man is the head, but they do what God created them to do, and they take their responsibility. Now, all of this was broken at the fall. When sin entered into the world, everything was broken. We live in a broken world, and we understand that. We understand that people are sinners, and they can't follow God in every way that they should follow Him. And so we, we find that uh, there can be abuse from both sides. Uh, throughout history, man has abused women. There's no doubt about that. There have been cultures, the Roman culture that the New Testament was written in, the man had thumbs up and thumbs down control over the, the life of his wife. And, and they were abused uh, like slaves. That has happened throughout history as well. And that is wrong for a man to assume that that's the kind of headship that God uh, has given him. And yet, uh, in many societies also, the wife uh, decides she's going to run everything and control everything. And as a matter of fact, God says, the, to, as he curses her in chapter 3, your problem is you're going to want to rule. And you're not going to be able to do it, and it's going to frustrate you all your life. And that's the curse given to you, and that's the abuse that has come from that side also. There are three major passages in the New Testament on the headship of the man in the home. 1 Corinthians 11, a long chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 2, that, where Paul writes. And 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter writes. And so you have uh, these, long, uh, these long passages. Okay, so we have pre-marriage and we have marriage. And let me speak for a few minutes about post-marriage. And here are my three words. Widow, junction, and responsibility. Now, I have already said, usually when we say widow, we refer to a female, a woman, and when we say widower, we refer to a man. But, of course, they're both in the same boat. In that case, they're left alone. The word widow, kera in Greek, simply means to be alone. There's lots of people who are alone. And so that aloneness sometimes uh, takes place after uh, the marriage has ended. And so how does the marriage end? Well, by death most commonly. And so obviously as a man and a woman grow older together, one of you will die first. And uh, then that other person will be left alone, a widow or a widower. Uh, there were, as I've already said in the New Testament times and, and today also, unwanted divorces uh, where an unbeliever departs. Uh, and goes his way. And Paul says then uh, the, the believing person is left alone and is not under bondage in such cases. And then there are those who chose singleness all their lives and lived their whole life without getting married. They're going to be older and in need sometime too. Uh, so there are different reasons to, be, to find yourself alone, or as Paul calls it, or we translate it, to be a widow. Now, 
I have found in my experience as a pastor and, and knowing a, a lot of older people throughout my life that there are a lot of different situations and not everybody can live in the same situation. There are some people who can live alone. And they don't mind living alone when, when their spouse is gone. And then there are others who do not want to live alone. And they decide very quickly, this isn't for me. Fine either way. I mean, you know, it's just the way God made you, I, I suppose, and what tools you have. There are some then who can care for themselves. Uh, some, uh, and, and I say this more in the sense of physically and emotionally and those kind of things, you can handle it yourselves and you can be alone and others that need help uh, with physical ailments or whatever, and, and they can't do that. There are some that can provide uh, monetarily and other ways for themselves and others that cannot do that for themselves. Some that have family help when they get to this stage in life and some that have no help at all. So there's a lot of different situations, and to me, I, I, I've kind of found that you're not going to know what that is till you get there. Uh, then you're going to decide uh, how you can handle it and where you fall in those kind of categories. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul deals with widows, and I, I do agree with those who broaden that category not to be just people, not just older ladies whose husbands have died though, of course, they're a big part of that, but anyone who's alone in the older stages of life. So Paul will say the family has the first responsibility. So uh, to a person that's older, uh, maybe it's your mother, your father, uh, you know, whatever, then if there's family and the family is able, then that's the first responsibility. And if you don't do that as a family, you're worse than unbelievers in that sense. You ought to take care. Secondly is the church. And so uh, the church can help in, uh, in, the, in these areas of widows or widowers uh, if that person has no other person to take care of them. And Paul puts some pretty st stringent qualifications on meeting that category for the church's help so that the church isn't just a service organization for the whole community. Anybody that's older is our responsibility. That, of course, is not, is not so. And then uh, Paul also in, in 1 Corinthians 7, that long chapter, he mentions a number of advantages to being widowed or widower or being alone in your older age. And one of those, he just simply says, is fewer responsibilities. So there you go. Uh, you, you don't have so many other people to take care of. You take care of yourself. And if you can do a good job of taking care of yourself, uh, fine. And you can live alone and that doesn't bother you, fine. Uh, he says, you have more time to serve God. Remember that statement where he says uh, the, the married person uh, has to make sure he or she pleases the husband or wife, but the single person only has to worry about pleasing God. And, and you, can, you can serve God in your older age that way. So, widows or widowers is a big topic in the New Testament. Now, I say junctions, secondly, the second word that I use here, and that is, well, what if there's marriage again in your older age? And, of course, that happens, right? And uh, that can be, uh, I, I think, a wonderful thing that happens. The Bible makes it clear that death annuls the marriage covenant. So when death happens, 
that marriage is annulled. And by the way, there will be no marriages in heaven, right? Uh, so uh, our, our uh, covenants are annulled even in heaven. So uh, what happens at that point? Are you free to marry? You are free to marry. Here's a couple statements. Romans 7, 3. So then, if while her husband lives, she's married to another, she would be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Or in 1 Corinthians 7, 28, even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if the virgin marries, of course, she's not sinned. And so to remarry after the death of your spouse is completely acceptable with God, and many people do, and I think that it's a great thing when it happens. I think there are reasons why this happens to people uh, after marriage, after their first marriage, uh, and they remarried. Number one, for love. <laughs> you may just fall in love with somebody. Okay, good reason. Number two, to be able to function again as God created you to function. I mean, evidently you've already said, I'm not made for single. I'm made to be married, but my spouse no longer is living. I want to function like that again, as God made me to function. And so a reason to get married again. Uh, the third reason would be to help one another. I, I think especially in, with older people, if I may speak, we're, we're, we're a little more sensible about the tingly feelings that come. And what we realize is that sometimes you need one another, you can serve God together, your life is better together, and so you're going to be together. And we handle it that way. We join in ministry together again, where perhaps as a single or a person alone, you wouldn't be able to do that. But lastly, you just may find it's God's will. You prayed, you thought about it, you looked. And this is God's will. I like what John MacArthur said in, in his book. He said, marriage should not be viewed merely as a means of escape. Loneliness and sexual temptation are not eradicated once you've found a life partner. Marriage is the right course of action for one reason only, and that is fulfilling the will of God. So if this is what God wants for you, the, then you should do it. Okay responsibility, lastly, the last word that I have here, the third word under post-marriage. And so we have a responsibility in our older years. We have a responsibility all of our life to family and to church. Whether you're alone for the rest of your life or whether you're remarried for the rest of your life, number one, you have a responsibility of serving God. You never get out of that responsibility. You must serve God regardless of, of, of what you're uh, marital situation is, what your life situation is. You must serve God. You may have responsibility to children and grandchildren, of course, if you've been married before and, and now you, you know there are grandchildren and great-grandchildren and, and, and many of those. You're an example. You're the one who prays. You're the one who is faithful to God and His church. You're the example in that family, the, the elder statesperson in that family. Thirdly, you will always have a responsibility to your church and to your local church. 
to the believers that you congregate with, the believers that you covenant together with. You have a responsibility, and, and uh, it's been my experience that every one of us, to the day we die, add to, add great things to the church that we're a member of. And those things are always important. And then I think, lastly, just for health and well-being, uh, you have a responsibility uh, to keep yourself before God and not to just let yourself go and not just do nothing and not just sit and, and, and become a vegetable. You need for your health and well-being to keep going for God in whatever way God leads. So I'll end it up by saying this. Marriage, remember, is the first divine institution God ever made. Before he ever invented government, before he brought Israel into being a nation, before he uh, started the church, he made marriage uh, in the first week of creation. And it is God's institution. And so marriage creates family. And that is how we multiply. That is how we serve. That is how we apply the dominion that God gave us to this world. That is why we always say families are the foundation of every society. And without families, the societies that come later will disintegrate and they will fall apart because that is not the way God designed this world. He designed it for marriage and for families. And then marriage also reflects the relationship we have with Christ. And that's the whole point of Ephesians chapter 5. We, he is the bridegroom and we are the bride of Christ. And uh, because of that, the relationship that a groom and a bride have reflects the very faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's important uh, all of our lives. So marriage is a great thing. And uh, so is singleness and those that God has gifted that way to live and serve God. And so we're all, we're all important. None of us as God's children are ever out of the sphere of service to him and to his church. And let's be faithful to that all of our lives. All right, stand with me if you will, and we'll, we'll pray, sing a song, and ask God to uh, speak to our hearts about these things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this divine ordinance of marriage that you gave uh, to the human race. And we thank you, Father, that, that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can design our families and live uh, within our homes in a way that honors our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you for these things. And Father, help us because we live in a dark world and we're light in a world and we're salt in an unsavory world. And so, Father, help us uh, to be the examples and the people that we should be. And bless us in our homes, bless us in our lives in these things. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken's going to come and lead us in a song. <laughs>